From Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, hear now God's word. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as the result of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. I remember many lessons taught to me by one of my favorite preachers, Al Martin, a Reformed Baptist pastor. I used to drive commute back and forth for several weeks when we moved to Texarkana from Shreveport. And I've, in, in addition to many, many, many hours of listening to him, But one of the pieces of counsel that he gave that I've always remembered was counsel he gave to pastors, particularly young pastors who were trying to lead congregations uh, perhaps into areas they had not thought about before. And he just had a, a saying that I appreciated, which was, carry them down familiar paths and show them new things. Well, I do hope that you have been seeing some new things as we have begun out this journey through this familiar letter to the Ephesians. And perhaps you will spot a few of those new things this morning, but I also think that it is very valuable as we travel down familiar paths that we see old things again, that we see them from a new angle, that we come to appreciate old things in a way that perhaps we haven't before, to be reminded, to be stirred up to gain a new appreciation, and so I am hopeful that that too will occur today with this very familiar passage from the book of Ephesians. These three verses provide a great summary to the argument that the Apostle has already been making at the beginning of this chapter in the first seven verses. These verses begin with the word for, since they are looking back to what he has already been saying You know, there are certain passages in Scripture that capture the essence of a key truth, and I believe this passage is one of those. There are certain uh, things, then, that we want to look at here, and this is a great passage to memorize and retain because it is so useful at so many levels. It gives us vital information about God. It gives us vital information about ourselves and about salvation. These verses tell us what it is that makes Christians. Now, this is not primarily academic, not what Paul is writing here, and it's certainly not theoretical. The part of Paul's, this part of Paul's letter has very clear pastoral concern to help people live the Christian life. And getting these foundational matters right, it is critical then Uh, to to get it right here because it helps us avoid getting it wrong everywhere else. And it is amazing to me as we look at this passage how wrong people get this over and over and over. So why are we Christians? What is the cause? Well, the answer is that it is completely, totally due to God's grace. God's ill-deserved favor shown toward sinners like us. 
In other words, our salvation is solely the result of God's action and not ours. In fact, salvation, we, would, we should say, comes in spite of us, not because of us. God is not responding to anything that we have done or that we could do. Grace excludes any contribution on our part. As the prophet Isaiah accurately described our situation when he wrote, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness, all of our righteousness says, are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So consistent with what Paul has already told us in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 in Ephesians, our very best is corrupt, unclean, and filthy. And we'll see why in just a moment. To put it another way, there is nothing you and I can do to merit or deserve salvation. We live in a day that proclaims all kinds of rights, but the Bible is clear that we have no right or claim upon salvation. We can't say, God, you owe this to us. We deserve salvation. We have no claim to that whatsoever. You see, the glory of salvation is that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and while we were under the domination of the lust of the flesh and of the principalities and powers of the air, the devil, if you will, and while we were under the wrath of God, God saved us. We deserve to remain separated from Him forever. We deserve hell. And instead, as objects of His love, we received mercy, grace, and kindness. And so, guess what? All the glory of salvation goes to Him. Every bit of it. Apart from His grace... We are not only by nature children of wrath, we are by our behavior and attitude rebels against God. Paul writes in Romans 8, for to be carnally minded, that is fleshly minded, is, to be, uh, is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity toward God. In other words, we are enemies of God. We hate God. We don't want God telling us what to do and interfering in our lives. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul writes in Romans 6, 16 and 17, Do you not know? that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which you, uh, to which you were delivered. You see, we can't imagine a worse condition than the one that describes us Outside of Christ. The only thing we deserved from God was His holy retribution. 
Then we then we're offered this amazing contrast. Remember the first three verses? Dead in trespasses and sins, slaves to our lust, and under the control of the principalities and under the wrath of God. And you remember those great words of verse four. The first two words. But God. But God. God not only doesn't give us what we deserve, He lavishes upon us the riches of His grace, the riches of His mercy, the riches of His love, the riches of His kindness. What were you? Or maybe I could ask you to imagine for a moment, what would you have been? Where would you be now without the grace of God? Paul remembered what God had done for him. Remember, he used to be the blaspheming Saul of Tarsus. He hated Jesus. He hated the church. But what made the difference? Or maybe better, who made the difference? And you know the story in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly... A light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Look, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the city. And you will be told what to do. I want you to notice Paul didn't initiate anything here. In fact, he was headed the other direction. He was headed to do the very opposite of what Jesus wanted him to do. But Jesus interrupted his life. Jesus took the initiative. Jesus saved Paul from himself and from his direction. Now, one of the things that is emphasized in these three verses is that all of this is done uh, for any number of reasons. The grace, kindness, mercy of God. God wants to demonstrate his kindness to the world. Remember, he's going to bring all things together in Christ. He's going to put on this display for everyone to see. It's about the glory of God. But also, the flip side of that is it excludes all boasting, all bragging on our part. Since God does it all, and He does it all by His grace, and we do nothing at all, then there is nothing for us to boast about, and all the glory of salvation goes to Him. If we contributed just 1%, then we would deserve 1% of the glory. But Paul makes it clear that there is zero room for boasting on our part. He says about the grace of God, about faith itself, that is not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. Apparently, Paul had learned this lesson well since before his conversion, he was somewhat accustomed to boasting. Philippians 3, 4 through 6, if if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. You see, he was proud of his circumcision, his nationality, his 
pride, his education, his knowledge, his morality, and so forth, he had a lot to brag about. But after his encounter with the grace of God, he came to see that all of this was irrelevant. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3. But what these things but what things were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, literally dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I attain to the resurrection from the dead. He said, it was not only not useful to have trusted in these things, it was garbage for me to have trusted in those things. Worthless. Now, there are two particular ways that we are prone to boast, and these are by our works, and if that doesn't get it, then, well, we can always fall back on our faith. How many people would say they are good? We just went out on the street and began to survey people. Are you a good person? Do they do good things? Are they at least as good as the next guy, if not better? Remember the praise, the, the, the praises that we, uh, or the, excuse me, the words of the Pharisees, uh, particularly the Pharisee in the temple. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I like that phraseology. He's not even praying to God. He's praying with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even as this tax collector, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. You see, this, this wasn't just talk. They, the, the Pharisees did these things. They thought they had something to boast about. You see, you can be good enough, you can't be good enough, you cannot be good enough to be a Christian. That's not how Christians are made. Ephesians 2.10 tells us we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God makes us to be Christians in order for us to do good works, but doing good works can never turn us into Christians. But then there's faith. If we don't boast in our good works, then we might be tempted to boast in our faith. At least we contributed our belief, right? Which, of course, turns faith into another kind of good work. Faith is not the cause of salvation. Christ is. Faith is the instrument. It is the medium of salvation, the conduit, the channel. Belief or faith doesn't save, Christ does. And so our being Christians 
I know I keep saying this, but it's the simple point, and, and so many people miss it that apparently it needs to be said over and over and over. Our being Christians is totally the work of God. He has done something, and he is doing something. The Greek word, we are his workmanship, is poiema, which is where we get our word poem. We are his poem, his workmanship, his artistic work, his creative work. In fact, he goes on to say, we are we are his workmanship, his poem created in Christ Jesus. And we are created for good works. And so, as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work, he who started writing this poem, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We are not an improved man, we are a new man. We are, as Peter says, partakers of the divine nature. What we usually think of as good works, you see, falls short. You say, well, I know some people that aren't Christians that do good things. They're good people. And in a relative sense, there is a a right way to use that. I don't want to become wooden in the way we use language. But if we're going to be precise theologically, which ultimately we must be, that gets to the heart of the matter then we have to understand the difference. You see, pirates do good works toward other pirates. They're out on the ship. Somebody has to swab the deck and cook the meals, catch the fish, count the loot, play cards, laugh, drink the rum, all those things. That's what pirates do. They take care of pirates. They take care of each other. They're a community. They're a communion. You see, but the whole time that they're doing those good works, the problem is those good works, so-called good works, are always in the service of criminal activity. Likewise, outside of Christ, our so-called good works fall short because they do not glorify God. And remember, that's the chief end of man, is to glorify God. For a good work to be a genuine good work in God's eyes, it must fall within the scope of the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's one of the qualities of a good work. And your neighbor as yourself. And so, to be united with Christ, we're told in the Bible, is to become like Christ. That is both the goal and the evidence of genuine salvation. Romans 8.29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And that's way more than just being a good man. You're better than a good man. Galatians 2.20-21, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live. In the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, through me doing good works, then Christ died in vain. 
Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, God is doing this both with individuals, men and women, as well as with the church. We are individually united to Christ, that is, to the body of Christ. We are now part of the body of Christ. That's, that's more than a metaphor. That's how God is working in the world. Christ is present in the world through you, through me, through his body. He's the head of the church. We're his body. We now represent him in the world. We're united to him. And so the good works that have been prepared for us are the works of Christ. We work on his behalf, if you will. We represent him. Now, this passage makes it clear that it is God who is active. He is the workman. As Psalm 103 instructs us, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So God is not sitting up in heaven waiting to do something, waiting for us to do something, and then He somehow responds. And reacts to our activity. Sometimes I think we have that image. He's, he's up there just waiting, listening, seeing what we're going to do next. Daniel 2.21, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings. He raises up kings. In fact, the whole Bible is a record of his activity. How does the Bible begin? In the beginning... God created. God was active. He created the heavens and the earth. He called Abraham and the prophets. He gave the law. He gave detailed instructions to build the tabernacle and later the temple. And in the fullness of time, He sent forth His Son. And we could go on and on. The Bible is full of the activity of God. From beginning to end, it is God's work. And so when it comes to us, what part do we play? It's the part that many don't like because it strips them of power and glory. You see, the Bible says there is a potter and there is the clay. Guess which one God is and which one you are. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For it is, the God, it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Remember that? Let there be light. Who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Same, same God, same kind of activity. Let there be light, and there was light. And guess what he says to you? If you know him. You were in darkness, and he said, let there be light. Just like that light shone on Paul on the road to Damascus. Now remember, all of this is an expression of God's kindness toward us. His mercy, his love, his grace, his gift of faith. His workmanship. 
So what should this do? It should produce humility in us. What would you do? What would you contribute? Nothing. It should produce humility and thankfulness in us. There but for the grace of God go I. Thank you. Moreover, it clarifies our mission. While the Bible's teaching on the absolute sovereignty of God and the freedom of men leaves us with some unresolved mysteries, that too is part of God's plan, I believe, to leave us humbled and thankful. All possibility of boasting is taken away from us. As Paul puts it in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And so we can never stand before God and say, the reason I'm saved is because I did this or that, or, and therefore I am worthy of salvation. No, it's all His mercy, His love, His grace, His kindness, start to finish. The other side of this, by the way, is equally comforting. This grace is greater than all my sin. Not only did I not bring anything, I, I, let me say, let me make one little tiny correction. I did bring something to the table. It was my sin. That's what I contributed. And there's a load of it. And it's filthy. And he took that and he dealt with that too. He saved me in spite of that, not because of that. That's the good news. That's the comfort, isn't it? That no matter how big a sinner you are, Paul said he was the chief of sinners. My 42nd anniversary is this Tuesday. In addition to the three years Mary and Ellen and I dated before that, I can stand here and tell you that I do not fully, this is a gross understatement, I do not fully understand her and how she thinks. But I do trust her, and I rest in her love. So too with our Heavenly Father. I don't understand, but a little bit. But I understand enough. We don't have to have all the answers. We've got all the answers that matter, though. We can at least say, as the blind man did that was healed by Jesus, one thing I do know, whereas I was blind, now I see. To God be the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Remind us today and every day that your salvation is all of grace, O oh Lord, so that we will not live proudly or boastfully, but humbly and thankfully. May we understand clearly, intellectually and experimentally, the relationship between grace and works. 
Let us walk today in those good works that you have prepared beforehand. Enable your ministers and all your people to explain clearly and effectively to others the relationship between grace and works, because so many are confused at this crucial point. Some are under the damning presumption that they are acceptable in your sight because of their good works. Others are living under the equally damning presumptions that they are saved by grace no matter what they do. May we powerfully refute these two lies and show men that their only hope lies in the atonement of Christ and that faith in Him inevitably results in a life of humble obedience. Thank you for the lavish riches of your mercy, love, grace, and kindness which have been poured out on us. Help us now to walk in those good works which you have prepared for us in Christ Jesus, in whose name we now pray. Amen. Amen. You have heard me say many times, and you will hear me say it many times more, that we come to the Lord's table to remember who we are and why we are here, and to remember who He is and what He has done for us. So listen to this passage again in that light. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's the whole story. Summarized in 49 words. His role, your role. The giver and the receiver. But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote of this passage in Ephesians 2. He said the New Testament Christians are constantly being exhorted to realize the privilege of their position. Though they are but a handful of people in a great pagan society, they are always being told to rejoice, to consider their wonderful destiny. They are being reminded of who they are and what they are, and they are told to lift up their heads and to go forward in a triumphant manner. All that is done, of course, all that is done, of course, in the light of what the New Testament expounds as the true doctrine concerning the Christian. And so, let us see him, and let us see ourselves in the light of his glory and grace. O Lord our God, we acknowledge that you alone are the initiator and worker of our salvation. We cannot save ourselves, nor can we assist you in saving us. We are the blessed objects of your mercy and grace. Clearly, Christ demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. While we were enemies, you reconciled us to yourself through your Son. The Lord is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer our God and our strength in whom we will trust, our shield and the horn of our salvation, you are our stronghold 
We will call upon you who is worthy to be praised. We will rejoice in your salvation. And in your name, we will set up our banners. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Father, in gratitude for your work of salvation, we commit ourselves to serve you with gladness in this new week, to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you, proclaiming the good news of your salvation from day to day, declaring your glory among the nations and your wonders among all peoples. For you, O Lord, are great and greatly to be praised. You are to be feared above all gods. Help us now to walk in the good works that you have prepared for us in Christ Jesus. Bless now our extended communion and meal. Give us your rest and your joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. Amen.